there's just something about that name. Names are so important. They're so important. We spend so much time naming kids. I remember, remember naming your kid. Did you get into fights about it? Lindsay and I got into multiple fights about what we were going to name our kids. She wanted to make, name our daughter Love. I said, Lindsay, we are not hippies. <laughs> naming kids, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an important task. My parents named me Randon. If I told you how many times a day I have to say, no, it's Brandon without the B, and spell it for people, I know my parents were trying to be cool and all that, but it was, it's a bother. Names are important. They always have been. Names are really important in Scripture, in, in fact, even more important in Scripture than they are in, in our society. Um, when, and when we look at God, His names are so important because they identify Him. You know who I am because you know my name. It identifies me from other people. When you say the name Randon Clark, it, it clarifies who we are talking about. And we know in our world that there are... Uh, the, the world worships many, many gods. But when we say the name of Jesus or when we say the name Jehovah, we are identifying exactly which God that we are referring to. But it's deeper than that. You go back to the Old Testament. Abraham, God calls Abraham to leave the house of his father, the land that he had loved and, and grown up in, which was called Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans is, is in modern-day Iraq. Abraham was a fairly wealthy man there. His father was a very wealthy man there. Uh, if you remember, when Abraham left, he already had servants and cattle and sheep and, and donkeys and camels. He left a fairly wealthy man in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, here's the interesting thing. They worshipped multiple gods, but specifically in Ur, they worshipped the moon god who was a female called Nana. Nana. And that's who they would worship. They would worship the moon god Nana. They, they loved her. They worshipped her. Um, they believed that she controlled the heavens and the life cycle on earth. It was their belief that the phases of the moon reflected the natural cycle of birth, growth, decay, and then death. So as the moon would go through its phases, that would be the same phase that everything on earth goes through from a birth, growth, then decaying, and then eventually dying, and the process starts again. They also set the measurement of their yearly calendar by the, the phases of the moon, she was supreme. She was the source of all fertility for crops, for livestock, for herds, for families. But here's the interesting thing. For Abraham and all those who worshipped this God and the other gods that they worshipped, was that there was no interaction between man and these gods. The gods did their thing and man did our thing. They would worship the gods, but these gods never interacted. Now, you and I know that the gods never interacted with the man because they weren't real gods. The moon is not a god. 
But at the time, this is the framework that Abraham is in. I worship the moon god, but the moon god never speaks to me. So suddenly, the real true and living God speaks to Abraham, and for the first time in his life, and really for the first time for most people, because they were worshiping false gods, suddenly Abraham is talking to a deity, to a god and he doesn't really know who he's talking to. Why does he know who he's talking to? Because he's been worshiping the moon god. She's a female. She's uh, up in the sky. We don't talk to her. And suddenly, God speaks to him and says, you need to leave the land which you're in and I'll show you where to go. Now, I've got to tell you, if you had been in a place in your life and you and no one you knew had ever spoken to a God, and suddenly God is speaking to you loud and clear, you might do what he said also. That might get your attention. If, if suddenly right now the heavens cracked open and God spoke to this congregation and said to do something, we might all be like, yes, sir. <laughs> right? This is what happens with Abraham, but Abraham still does not really know the God he's following. He knows this is not the moon God. He knows this is not the sun God, but he does not fully understand who is speaking to him, and he didn't know much about this God. He just knew he said leave. So he arrives in Canaan, and he builds an altar, and he calls God there, and he uses this word Yahweh or Jehovah. The word Yahweh is actually from the Hebrew, but in the Hebrew, um, it's not spelled like we spell it in the English. We spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H. But in the Hebrew, they took out the vowels and compressed it to where it's just continents, so it's Y-H-W-H. Because it was believed that the name of God was so holy that it couldn't even be voiced. So they came up with a new word over the course of, the, of time. We started saying it Yahweh or Jehovah. But the truth is, we don't know how they actually spoke it. Because in the third century, the Jews quit saying the name altogether. They totally stopped saying the name of Jehovah because they believed it was so holy, they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain, so they quit speaking it altogether. So we don't even know if we're saying Yahweh correctly. That's how much they valued the name of God. They wouldn't even speak it. Now, in our society, as you well know, the name of God is taken in vain on a regular occurrence. But in Scripture, there was a deep-rooted understanding and the importance of the name of God. Why? In our society, names, the importance of a name has been devalued. Whereas in Scripture, it declared who you are, your nature, your character, and your actions. So the name of Jehovah was holy. Abraham builds an altar. He calls him Yahweh. He calls him Jehovah. In Genesis 14, 22, I love what Abraham says. He's speaking to God. He's making a declaration. This is right after he talks to Melchizedek, uh, the, the priest of Salem. He's had this encounter with God, and he says this. He calls God the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Put this into context for Abraham for a moment. 
he's still learning who he's worshiping. Remember, he's come from a, uh, a society that worshiped multi- multiple gods. So here's what he is declaring. First of all, Lord, which says that I am your servant. Then he says, God most high. What is he specifically saying? He's saying there are lots of gods in this world, but you're the highest of them all. What, do you see how this is a, a, a progression of revelation? Now, when we say the Lord Most High, we don't believe that there are m- multiple gods to worship in this world. We believe there's just one, but we believe that he's God Most High above all that he's created. But Abraham meant it to say, of all the gods out there that I have worshipped as a child, you are the Most High. Then he said, creator of heaven and in the earth. So this identified what God had done. You are the actual God that created everything. Somehow he remembered the stories that he had heard about Adam and Eve and creation. And, and he recognized that this God that I'm speaking to is the same God that walked with Adam in the cool of the day and created all that we have here. He is understanding who God is. And every time he gains new understanding of who God is, he gives him a new name. He didn't have names for God. He didn't have a scripture to go read and know what to call God. So he just called him by whatever he did. He called him by whoever he realized God was. So he said, you are Jehovah. It wasn't until... Uh, about Genesis, the 17th chapter, that Abraham really determines to serve God alone. As Abraham and his descendants begin to learn more and more about God, they continue to give him names that not only identified him, but they told us his nature. This is the way of Scripture. A name tells you about a person. It identifies their character, their nature, and their actions. Fast forward to the life of David. Prophet Samuel has just died. David and his men have been out and they've been uh, running and fighting and all these things. And they had protected the sheep and the servants of a man named Nabal. Now, Nabal translates as fool. All right? How would you like your parents to name you fool? (laughs) So they protect this man's uh, livestock and his servants. Well, it, became, it, it came time for when they would um, get all the wool off the sheep. And they would always have this huge celebration, big barbecue basically, big party, and everybody would come over. So David sends word to Nabal and says, hey, we've been kind to your people. We've been kind and protected you. Can we come? We're hungry. Can we come hang out at your party? Nabal starts insulting David. He starts throwing insults and I can't believe you're, you know, you're this and you're that and you're terrible and you're a thief and all these things. And so the servants go back to David and they tell him, now you got to understand this upset David really bad. So David then starts gathering his men and said, we're going to go kill them all. He said, as surely as the Lord is on the throne by tomorrow morning, they'll all be dead. Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears one of the servants came and says, Abigail, you know how much of a fool your husband is. 
this is what he said, and we know that David is going to come kill us. So she gets bread and food and all kinds of gifts. She loads it up, and they take off for David. When she finds David, David is putting his sword on and grabbing his shield. He is about to go bust some heads, literally. And she says, David, whoa, 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 whoa. She falls down on her knees, and she says, you know, you were kind to us. I didn't hear about any of this. If I had, I would have come sooner, but I just heard about it, and I brought you gifts. And watch what she says about her own husband uh, in in the book of 1 Samuel. Nabal is a bad-tempered boar. (laughs) Ladies, you ever said that about your husband? (laughs) You're a bad-tempered boar. Please don't pay any attention to what he said. He is a fool just like his name means. What do we see here? We see in this a picture that she says, David, you know that whatever his name is, that's what he is. And his name says he's a fool, so he's acting like a fool. So please don't kill everybody because he's acting like a fool. David had mercy. As it turns out, God ends up dealing with Nabal himself. Nabal dies and Abigail becomes one of the wives of David. This is what I want you to notice here. He is a fool just like his name means. The principle is a name described nature, character, and actions. It's the same thing for God. Psalm 148 and 13, the psalmist writes this, Let them all praise the name of the Lord, for His name is very great. His glory towers over the heavens and the earth. We praise His name. Why? Because when we glorify His name and we praise His name, we are declaring His nature, who He is and what He does. Are you out there this morning? When we pray, we aren't just praying to any God, but when we call on the name of our God, we are invoking these things, who He is in our life. Moses said in Exodus chapter 33, he said, Lord, I need to know your ways. God said, well, then I'll go with you. He said, no, 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 no. Show me your glory. God said, I'll let my goodness pass before you. So here's what God said. He said, I want you to get in in the cleft of this rock. And he said, I'm going to allow my goodness and my glory to pass before you, but I'm going to cover you because you can't look on my face and live. So I'm going to cover you. And then once I pass by, as I'm walking, I'm going to speak my name, my nature, my character. And even though you can't see it, you're going to be reminded of who I am. And then once I've passed, I'm going to remove my hand and you'll be able to see my backside. You will be able to see what has just passed in front of you. Isn't that how life often works when we're following God? As we're in the midst of something, we can't seem to see God all the time. It's like he's hidden from us. But if we can remind ourselves of his name and as of his goodness and of his nature, at some point we look up and after he's already gone, we see, oh, that's what God has been doing. It's why the Bible says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I didn't see it while I was in it, but when I look back, oh, that's where God was. But we've got to know something about the names of God because if we don't know what they mean, we won't know how to invoke the character and the nature and the actions of God. 
if all you know of God is that he is a judging God, you won't want to love him. If all you know about God is he is a God of rules and don't do this and don't do that and you have to do this, then we won't want to serve him and we won't want to follow him. But if we could really understand the context, the the full context of who God is and what his names are, then you would say, man, now that is a God that I want to give my life to. Here's what I want to do for just a few minutes, if you will. Let me give you three names of God that you may not know. But once you know these, they will encourage you today, wherever you are. Is that okay? The first one is this. Um, Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. Now, there are a lot of names that begin with Jehovah, Jehovah Rapha, uh, Healer, Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. But this one means, the Lord is my banner. Where did this name come from? (coughs) Excuse me. Moses and the children of Israel had left Egypt. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had died after they crossed the Red Sea and and the, and the, the sea crashed back down on them. But they have not entered into the promised land. They're caught in the middle. But what we forget sometimes is even though God fought Pharaoh for the Israelites, the Israelites still had to fight people to get to the promised land. You see, there are some battles in our life that God totally takes care of, and there are some battles that God puts us through to teach us. They had to fight the Amalekites. Amalekites were a very warring nation. And so Moses goes to Joshua, and he says, I want you to grab your best fighting men, and I want you to go down at the base of the hill, and you're going to fight. And I'm going to stand up on the top of the hill overlooking the battle. And here was what happened. Every time that Moses would raise his hands the Israelites would begin to win the battle. But when his hands grew weary and began to fall, the Amalekites would take back over and begin to win. So the Bible tells us that Aaron and Hur went up alongside Moses because this battle raged all day long from morning till night. And they lifted up the hands of Moses because how many of you know you can't just keep holding your hands up in the air? So they held his hands up. They propped his hands up. And eventually, by the end of the day, God gave the Israelites victory over the Amalekites. Moses builds an altar, and he names it Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Now here's what it means on a couple of different levels. Number one, it was a declaration that Moses was making That the Lord is not just my banner, but he is a banner of victory. This is a place of victory. And as long as my praise and as long as my hands were lifted to God, we received God's victory in the battle. It ought to be a reminder to us to never go out and fight on our own, but our, our battle position is first and foremost lifting our hands in worship to God. Before you face difficult times in your life, God, my life belongs to you. This day belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you. And in that moment, you will, you will see how God begins to work in your life. He is our banner of victory. But it's more than that. In ancient times... Uh, And and even up through uh, the first few centuries, when armies would go to battle, on the front lines, they would carry 
huge poles with flags at the top that told everyone, this is who you're fighting for. This is, this is the army. So if, let's say, the, the Americans were fighting the Germans in World War II, but way back then, or the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, they would have a, ban- a, a tall pole with a flag that was the flag of the nation of Israel. Here's what it did. When the guys were fighting, it was a point of encouragement, a focal point on where the battle is at. Because sometimes in hand-to-hand combat, you would get off course and you would end up fighting all by yourself, surrounded by your enemy. But if you could always look up and see where that banner was, you would be fighting back towards the banner. Why? Because that's where your help was. That's where your army was. That's where your strength was. What does that mean to us? We come here Sunday after Sunday. What what are we doing? We are raising up Jehovah Nissi, the banner of victory, because the enemy wants to isolate us and get us pulled away. But what we do week after week after week is we worship the name of God, we lift our hands, we glorify Him, but we're raising our banner. And so never go through life alone. Never go and fight your own battles because the enemy wants to isolate you and take you out. But what do we do? It's a rallying point. It's a day of hope. It's a day of encouragement. Yes, we got to go back out and we have to fight battles, but we come in here on Sunday and our hope is raised and our, and our energy is raised. And we know that we are not fighting alone. If you're watching online right now, don't fight your battles alone, but know that there is a church and an army of believers and we're raising our banner of victory. Amen? Don't do it alone. Don't fight alone, right? That's why why Sunday mornings and life teams are so important because the enemy wants to get you pulled away. You look up and you say, man, I just feel like I'm fighting by myself. No, no, no. Come back here. Let's rally together. You are not alone. Second name is this. So Jehovah Nisi is one. The second name is El Ra'i. And it translates the God who sees me. Here's the story. Abraham has been promised that he would be the father of many nations, but he doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have an offspring. Sarah is old as dirt and can't have kids. She's old. Go read it. She's old. She was so old that when God said she was going to have a son, she laughed. Okay, so don't don't, don't blame me for saying she was old as dirt. She was old. (laughs) So... She did something that we look down on but was fairly common in her society. And that was she got one of her young servant girls, her young slaves, a woman named Hagar. And she brought her to Abraham and she said, Abraham, I'm giving her to you that through her you impregnate her. And when she has a son, it will be my offspring. Now this seems crazy in our world. But this is what happened in Abraham's day. This was a very common thing. It was a lawful thing. And the son of of Hagar, the son of the slave, would be the legal offspring of both Abraham and Sarah. It was as if Sarah had had the son herself. So I know we think this is crazy, Sarah. What are you trying to do here? But this is common. This is what went down. She didn't know anything else to do. She was trying to help God fulfill his word well Hagar gets pregnant of course 
And Hagar starts treating Sarah with contempt. She starts treating Sarah badly. Sarah gets really upset about it. She goes to Abraham. Abraham says, it's your slave, it's your servant, do with her what you want. So Sarah starts treating Hagar badly, just treats her terribly. And it gets so bad between the two of them that Hagar feels like she has nothing left to do except for to run. In her mind, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything to cause this. I just, okay, I, I may have treated Sarah badly, but I didn't put myself in this position. She told me I am her slave, and yet here I am. And she runs, and in her distress, and in her worry, and in her fear, she is crying out to God, and she finds herself next to a river, next to a, a stream, on the side of the road, and she is distraught. No one else cares. No one else sleep, sees me. I'm just a cast-off slave that's been treated wrong. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord appears to her. And he says, I hear you. You're going to name your son Ishmael, which literally translates as the God who hears. And he begins to encourage her right where you are. He says, got a huge future for your son. It's going to be great. Hagar, through her tears, looks up. And she calls God, and, and I'll read the verse to you. Uh, in Exodus, uh, excuse me, in um, Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. I want you to know this about God. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, whether you caused it or didn't cause it, in your good times and in your bad times, when the times you feel like everyone's watching and the times when you feel you are all alone, you serve a God whose name is the God who sees me. Sometimes we're fighting battles and we're going through things in our life. And in a day of social media, when everything is online, we can still feel like no one cares, no one knows. And we're fighting a secret battle. But I want to encourage you today. God sees you. How do I know it? Because it's his name. el Rai, The God who sees me. I love this verse. In Proverbs chapter 15 and 3. The Lord is watching everywhere. Keeping his eye on both good. Both the evil and the good. Why did I read this verse to you? Because I want you to know, if you have been doing things right, God sees you. But if you've been making mistakes and you know it and you've caused your own mess, I want you to know that God sees and he still wants to help you. It doesn't matter how you got to where you are, Hagar. God sees you. God sees you. The second thing about this that I, that I love so much is not only did God see her, but he revealed his work to her. And I just want to speak this word to you. Not only is God seeing you, but I believe he's going to begin to reveal his work to you. He's going to begin to show you what he's doing. He's going to show you a way out. He's going to show you a next step. He's going to reveal to you. Number three. Number three. So number one was Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my what? Banner. 
The second was El Roi, which means the God who what? Sees me, sees me. And the third one is this, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. And this is a, this is a wonderful name of God. It's got multiple levels to it, so I'm going to share the first one with you, and if that were it, that would be enough. But the second one is really where I want to end today and what I believe God wants to do for us. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, and he was prophesying because of the idolatry of the Israelites, because they had turned away from God, they had brought in foreign gods, and and they were just, as a nation, just completely turned away. Ezekiel prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that the presence of God would leave, because of all that they've done. He said, God can't stay here, there's too much idolatry, so God is leaving and Israel will be destroyed. So the book of Ezekiel is set up into three parts, and the first two, that's what he's talking about, the destruction and the reasons why and the problems. But the third portion, he changes. This is the, I'm about to read to you the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel, the last words that God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. Here's what he said, chapter 48. The distance around the entire city will be six miles. And from that day, the name of the city will be, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah. Now, first level is this. This is what God was declaring. My presence left Jerusalem. My presence will return to Jerusalem. When you get back, I will already be there. I want you to know this. Have you ever been um, thinking about something in your future? Maybe you've got, had a big test, you had an interview, um, your wedding day, whatever the case might be, might be and, and you've been thinking about it, and as you thought about it, man, you got that knot in your stomach, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, not sure how you were going to make it through, like, I don't know how I'm going to do all this, I don't know if I can. Here's what God is saying to you. I've already been there in the future, and when you arrive, I will be there waiting for you. Jesus said, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because Jesus knew that God is not bound to time. So he is both with you here today and already waiting for you when you get there. The Lord is there. Pastor Ryan, and I'm not even sure where I'm going. All you've got to do is keep following God, because when you get there... Wherever there is, he'll be there waiting for you. Notice he says here city. The specific city that he's referring to is Jerusalem because he had already prophesied because of what you've done, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But he said, then the city's going to be rebuilt. And so he's talking about earthly Jerusalem. This is symbolic of earthly Jerusalem. So he's giving a a picture to declare the nature of God. Here's what he's saying. Jerusalem is being destroyed. But what I'm going to do is I am going to restore the city. The word Jehovah, the name Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there, 
is not just a declaration that his presence is already waiting for us, but it is also a declaration that our God is a restorer. Whether something happened to you that you didn't cause, or whether you did it to yourself like the Israelites, God is still a restorer. Whatever you've lost in your life, whatever has been stolen from you, whatever has been taken from you, God is a restorer. Let me give you five quick things, and you can study these on your own, five quick things that God will restore in your life. Number one, he'll restore your health, Jeremiah 30 and 17. God wants to restore your health. If you've been struggling in your health and you've been fighting every demon in hell, I just want to speak over you. God is restoring your health. Number two, he will restore your wealth. We see this in Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3, Deuteronomy 8 and 18, and Job chapter 42 verse 10. God wants to restore your wealth. Everything that the enemy stole from you, God wants to restore it in your life. Did you receive that? Number three, God wants to restore your time. He wants to restore your time. You see this in Joel chapter 2. He's going to restore the years that the canker worm stole from you. Everything that was taken, everything that was ripped away from you. Every time when you, every year that you spent broken and trying to recover, God said, I'm going to restore that back to you. Number four, in Psalm 23, he says, he restores my soul, my mind, my heart, my soul, my will, my emotions. He's going to restore you. And number five, I love this one. In Deuteronomy 30 and 3, I'm going to read this verse to you. He's going to restore everything you've lost. If it's not on the list, don't worry about it. He's going to restore everything you've lost. Watch this verse right here. Deuteronomy 30 and 3 in the Message Bible. God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. He'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you were scattered. I don't know how your life has been, but as I was praying, I just felt God saying, Randon, there are people whose lives have been broken and there are pieces of their life scattered over 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years. They've been taken here and taken there, this and that. And God told me to come here today and tell you that he's going to restore everything you've lost because it's who he is. And when he restores you, he's going to be right there with you. Can I pray for you this morning? I don't know what you've lost in your life. I don't know what it is. You say, Pastor Ron, I need you to pray for me. I need the God who restores to show up for me. Can you just wave your hand at me really quickly? Yeah. The God who restores. If you're watching online right now, the God who restores is here. Father, I thank you for revealing to us today who you are. And as we declare your name, it is unlocking your nature and your character 
in our lives. Do what you do, God. Restore us. Don't just rebuild, but restore better than ever, more valuable than ever. Everything that was lost, wealth and health and time and our soul and relationships, marriages, relationships with sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Father, restore us now. Lord, would you gather all the pieces that we have scattered over the years of our life. Father, for things we caused and for things that we never cause restore us anyway we know that you are the god that sees us so lord we declare right now be who you are in our lives heal and restore in the name of jesus we pray amen